0: Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki.
1: And I'm Landry Ayers.
0: On this day, the 4th of November, the day after the 2020 presidential election, the only verdict is vengeance, a vendetta held as a votive not in vain for the value and veracity of such shall one day vindicate the vigilant and the virtuous. And we all must remember the 5th of November. Joining us today to talk about another Wachowski dystopia, V for Vendetta are two of Cato's very own. Research fellow Patrick Eddington. Hello there. And senior fellow Julian Sanchez.
2: Hey. Uh,
1: Julian, Pat, the iconic Guy Fawkes mask worn by V in this film, I think arguably has had a more enduring legacy than the movie itself, Uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing (laughs) we can get to. Do you think audiences are missing the point by lionizing the
2: So, you know, it, it was always, I think, even in uh Alan Moore's original graphic novel, a sort of strange choice um to make Guy Fox the sort of emblem of religion. I mean, Guy Fox was not some kind of uh anarchist, authoritarian revolutionary. He was a a, a you know, sort of a radical Catholic uh who uh, you know, blew up, or, or, uh, plotted to blow up a democratic uh, institution, or at least as democratic as you got in that in that era, you know, essentially because he was a theocrat, um, and didn't like uh the uh, idea of of you know abandoning uh a Catholic Britain. So, uh, uh, sort of an unlikely anarchist hero. Uh, but it is also worth noting that that, in a sense, I think the meaning that the guy Fox, Fox Mask has taken on. Uh, in, in in the sort of modern context where it's been adopted by groups like Anonymous, really has its origins in something that is original to the film. That is the uh, the scene uh, sort of near the end where uh, V uh, has sort of mailed out these these fox masks to you know uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of of people in Britain, uh, and they all kind of march out with the masks on to uh, support this anti authoritarian revolution that v, v has sparked. And that just, d- none, none of that happens in, uh, in the comic book. In the comic, there's a scene where, um, you know, people come out sort of angry and confused, not necessarily, uh, you know, in support of V and, uh, are addressed by Evie, who's sort of taken up the mantle of V. Um, but so this sort of everyone coming out doing an I am Spartacus, uh, and, and adopting the V mask <laughs> as, as, as sort of, uh, a symbol of a kind of mass movement is just a a total creation of the film, um, but I think that's that's the scene that that folks like Anonymous have in mind when they adopt that. And I should say it is it is uh, you know something we've actually seen in a bunch of sort of early knots and late '90s superhero movies. Um, I, I said before I think when we talked about Watchmen that there is um, a kind of whiff of inherent fascism to uh, superheroes. Um, right, I mean, Superman is is um, essentially an English translation of Übermensch. Um, but um, so you see, in for example, Spider Man Two, um, a kind of phenomenal, I, I, amazing. I just and have it, to say, <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> but you see, you see this sort of attempt at a kind of populist moment where uh, the you know, yes, the very special hero has these powers, but needs um, you know, kind of the population. Really, in both Spider Man movie, the first Spider Man movie, there's the um, you know, the crowd scene where people start pelting the Green Goblin with bottles and rocks and things because you can't mess with New York. Uh, and in the second one, uh, he sort of passes out on the uh, on the train after saving it. And everyone just sort of gives him his, um, his mask back and helps him and agrees not to sort of reveal his identity. Um, you saw it in, I think, Superman Returns. There's a kind of similar scene where Superman kind of needs to be saved by Uh, Of masses of ordinary people, Uh, and so there's there's something of that uh, in I think uh, that final scene here. That again, I think is why uh, the fox mask has has become this sort of mass mass icon, Um, and it's it's part of this attempt to inject um, something more populist. In in the uh, you know original graphic novel, I think it it remains much more of a kind of individualist anarchist, and you know I mean Moore is certainly a, a a man of the left, but there is a more sort of sternarian individualist, uh, flavor, uh, to, to his anarchism, at least, you know, the anarchism of, 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 his, of, of V for Vendetta anyway, of, 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 which is kind of borderline more, more juvenilia.
3: So I think that, you know, the whole, fa- uh, the whole, you know, episode with, with the gunpowder plot, um, and, and the reason that, um, you know, the mask itself, you know, becomes a thing with Occupy Wall Street and, and as uh, Julie, Julian indicated, Anonymous and all the rest of that really goes back, at least in my view, to this idea of, of governmental oppression against a particular, uh, group or element, uh, that is disfavored. Right. And so I, and so I think, you know, to kind of put it in the, in the modern context, you know, the Occupy movement to the extent that it had any coherence at all, uh, was essentially a reaction against, uh, what the demonstrators perceived to be, uh, you know, an out of control, uh, unaccountable, uh, you know, capitalist run system, uh, that was, uh, you know, allegedly responsible for all the evils afflicting society and so on and so forth. And, and I think, you know, any time that that you have a a movement um, that feels like it's dealing with a, a, an asymmetric power dynamic, and that's really what what we are talking about here, um, you know, it's it's going to have that kind of effect. But there's there's no question, Landry, that I I think that you're absolutely right. That which is unfortunate because. You know, I've, I've never, I've never really been a huge comic book guy, so I'll, I'll, I'll make that admission right now. So I, I, I haven't read the original <laughs> uh, uh, V for Vendetta here, but I think the the number of parallels that this movie has for where we are in twenty twenty is it's is scary. Pretty, is pretty. It is pretty <laughs> alarming. It it is pretty scary. I mean, and and that I don't think that you can, you know a hundred percent, you know, necessarily analogized to it. But, you know, this whole idea that the coronavirus is a hoax, and then, you know, to the movie, you know, it's like, oh, these terrorists are responsible for this virus, and when in fact uh, it was the government itself. And and of course the the, the podcast on all the president's men that that, that we did a, a couple of weeks ago, we you know we talked in that particular episode about this whole genre of movies essentially dealing with, you know, government skullduggery, conspiracies, all the rest of that, you know, this, for me, even uh, Fever Vendetta is, you know, is is one of the more contemporary examples of that.
2: Uh, you know, in, uh, this is one of the, one of many changes between the graphic novel and the film is that in the in the graphic novel, uh, fire, the sort of fascist regime in Britain, rises to power following a, um, some sort of limited nuclear war involving the United States. Um, so this sort of, uh, I guess pandemic storyline where um you know the the characters have discover over the course of the film that um North fire actually rose to power following this this biological weapons attack that, that caused many uh, hundreds of deaths uh uh, uh but was actually uh, uh, uh developed and and released by elements within the government itself that whole sort of pandemic storyline is is also original to the film um so uh I think you know probably just uh, as an update in part because maybe um we have a very different sense of how survivable uh you know a limited nuclear exchange would be for uh, uh for the planet
3: and what what folks may not remember or, or realize is that uh there was actually a fairly virulent fascist element uh in the u k during the 1930s, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the British, the British Union of Fascists, um, you know, so there is there is also, you know, kind of a hearkening back, um, you know, to, to that odious tradition, if you will. But I, I think that, you know, when I, when I look at, when I look at this film, and I, I, I really do want to talk about this, you know, just from kind of a, a critical cinematic standpoint. I have always been outraged and I mean, absolutely outraged (laughs) that Hugo Weaving did not win an Oscar for this. I mean, the, his, his performance was simply outstanding. And of course, you know, this, this is the guy that, that gave us such a memorable character from, from the Matrix movies um, and, and did a pretty good job as Elrond in Lord of the Rings. Um, But, but, but to, but to be able to carry off that performance. And and to successfully communicate, you know, that level essentially of passion and emotion and all the rest of that through that entire getup, that entire garb, um, you know, a lot of stage actors, you know, wind wind up, you know, if you're a fan of the opera and all the rest of that, but you're not talking about, you know, complete covering there. So I, I've always felt that, that weaving, you know, got shortchanged in, in just a massive way for his performance in that.
2: Um I mean it's certainly it's certainly a uh you know a, a a stumbling block or a difficulty for an actor to be able to to perform through um you know an unchanging mask and not being able to use uh you know in, in particular Weaving's kind of incredibly expressive face um so you know having that hand tied behind his back it's, it's impressive especially you know in some of those scenes it's not actually Weaving's body it's his voice um dubbed over James Purifoy's uh acting and um, you just, I guess you, you you never know if uh, if you hadn't you know read the Wikipedia. I guess <laughs> <laughs>
1: one thing that you all sort of mentioned that uh, it specifically um, the changes from the source material of Alan Moore's graphic novel comic books to the the film uh, is a, a sort of shift. From the focus of the original, which is much more about like British thatcherism based on you know when it was written and and the reaction to that uh, and the movie certainly, though it is set in England and to me was a little refreshing at first to see a a fascist uh, movie that was not set in the United States um, <laughs> I realized. Pretty quickly that it was much more of a commentary on what seemed to be like post 9-11 America than what the source material would be about. Um, you know, you have you have the sort of dumbing down of the uh, racial purity themes. Uh, they even changed Norse fire's motto from strength through purity, purity through faith. Um, it, it becomes strength through unity, unity through faith. so there's there's that sort of removal and it, it heavily focuses on anti-islamic sentiment and this sort of homo antagonism, um, some of which is still present in the source material, but it's it's much more highlighted. So what do you think it specifically says about that time period? whether it's you know, you know what we see today with the the sort of Trump, uh, uh, administration, or specifically the you know George W. Bush uh, uh, subsequent administration that was going on when this movie was being produced. Um, and how different would a film be if it was more devoted to the source material? Maybe Julian, you could enlighten us to that since you're familiar with it.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, there's certainly a lot of that. Louis Prothero, the um kind of propagandist who's who's killed uh, relatively early on in the. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the comic is, is actually sort of poses as the voice of fate, which is a sort of AI supercomputer that helps plan the, the fascist state, uh, for the government. Um, and he's, you're essentially supposed to be the voice of the computer itself speaking to reassure the nation. Um, here he is reimagined as much more of a kind of, uh, a Fox News style personality, essentially. Um, you know, explicitly talking about the you know the the problem of godlessness and and how the the virus is a, a judgment on the U.S. for being insufficiently godly. Uh, There's a great bit of business, by the way, one of my favorite scenes that's really original to the film is is uh, him in the shower watching himself on these enormous screens he has in <laughs> oh, his <yeah>. bathroom, <laughs> yeah. and uh, yes. and kind of voicing uh-huh. along to his own uh, sort of Jeremiah on, on the television uh so yeah yeah um you know certainly they've they've updated a lot of things from the you know not just the 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 pandemic as opposed to the nuclear uh exchange as the kind of instigating force, but also right, uh, a lot more focus on both islam and on uh sexual minorities as opposed to the the racial purity that was much more at the core of uh the concerns in the uh in the original graphic novel and you know one angle I think it's important to stress here uh is uh the you know, the fact that as, as, as sort of no one really knew, I guess, at, at the time the film came out, uh, like The Matrix, this is a film made, I know it was directed by James McTeague, but it was executive produced and, and written by the Wachowskis. So I think it's fair to call this yeah. a Wachowski movie. Um, but so this is a movie that, that was essentially made by, uh, again, much like The Matrix, by a, a pair of trans women who at the time were, uh, not openly trans. I'm not sure to what extent they themselves thought of themselves as trans, but were just struggling with, with their own gender identities at the time. Uh, but of course, no one knew that. They were at the time known as the Wachowski brothers. Um, and I know Lily Wachowski has said uh, that really th- the matrix should be seen as an allegory for uh, transgenderism, right? You have a protagonist who discovers in effect in the first act of the movie um, that his body is not his body. Um, and that he this this um, makes him different from those around him and gives him uh, to some extent sort of special abilities and, it, and the film is essentially about um, embracing and discovering this this kind of difference about himself. Um, you see this in characters. Some of the stuff was sort of taken out, like the character of Switch in that film, who was supposed to be um, a different gender inside and outside the Matrix, sort of stressing the um, the kind of the illusoriness or the artificiality of the body. And I think a lot of the differences between the source material and the um uh, and the film uh, can be to some extent sort of illuminated by by kind of retroactively viewing it uh, in the light of this is this is again something produced by a, a couple of trans women who are at the time presenting as male um, and and you know maybe only beginning to really come to terms with their own gender identities. Um, there is, for example, the the character of Gordon Dietrich is totally different. This is uh, Stephen Fry's character who uh, in the in the graphic novel Evie is, is basically a 16 year old I suppose aspiring prostitute um, who ends up having a uh, you know effectively a sexual relationship with uh, this guy Dietrich who is, is certainly not gay in the in the um, in the graphic novel um, before uh, being sort of abducted again by V uh, and uh, so so the centrality of Dietrich as a uh, a kind of closeted gay man uh, who, uh, you know, talks quite explicitly about being unable to um, be open about uh, his his sexual identity uh, or his, his, his you know, orientation, at least. Um, Is becomes a much more central character. Becomes, in a sense, um, a, an aid to V or someone who picks up the challenge from V by producing this uh, satirical broadcast lampooning uh, the fascist leader and pays for it. Um, but that. That, again, re-centers this on, on questions of sexual identity. Um, there are lines that are original to the uh, movie, as far as I can tell. It, I think, can be interestingly read uh, as an extension of that theme about um, the of the of, of the body. Um, there's a line where uh, Evie reaches out to touch V's mask. Uh, and he sort of says, no, 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 there's a face behind this mask. But that isn't me any more than my muscles or the skeleton behind my face. Um, you know, consonant with the kind of ideas are bulletproof. It doesn't matter who V is. V is sort of an idea. Um, but also, again, I think read through this that light, um, can be seen as uh a an extension of that idea of uh, the self that matters is not in any real important sense the self of the body. Um, and also, I think maybe throws a different light on uh that very significant changed ending where instead of being kind of angry and confused uh, and hearing Evie speak as the new V uh, the, the people themselves come out and actually as they take off their masks at the end, um, we see characters who have died, including a um, uh, Stephen Fry's Dietrich and uh, Valerie uh, who we you know died years earlier at Lark Hill. Um, but that final scene where in a sense the whole community becomes V and then, uh, and then all feel comfortable unmasking um, it strike me again in, in, in terms of thinking of this in terms of, of trans women um, struggling with their uh, their own identity that, that it seems as odds with um, your sort of bodily presentation and then finding this kind of acceptance that, that doesn't really happen. It's left ambiguous in the graphic novel. Um, it's just I, I think that's an illuminating or an interesting angle on it that no one when the film came out, really, you know, would have had the information necessary to to see it through that lens.
0: I think around that same part that um, V uh, that Evie was, um, like, going for V's mask, she said something along the lines, as you wear a mask for so long that you forget who you are beneath it, um, which I also thought was interesting because you're going along with that V as an idea, not necessarily, like, a person. And I thought that was just interesting how they were bringing up, again, the mask, like Landry said earlier, is one of the things that has really, like, had a prolonged presence much past the film. Um, and another thing I think we should bring up from the original material is that I was reading up that Alan Moore was actually really irritated with how they adapted the um, the graphic novel for film uh, because he thought they kind of watered down the dialogue about fascism versus anarchy, which is really present in the original source material. But um, the script that the Wachowskis made is um, obviously centers on like political themes that were currently going on in American politics so that's back in 2005 um so they're they're critiquing the the politics of that time um which then really changed the original story to no longer be about like fascism versus anarchy um though though obviously V is an anarchist but um i think it's just i think it's interesting that there's a that like line where the, uh, Alan Moore is kind of upset that they, they went this road um, this road with the adaptation.
2: I mean, Alan Moore, I don't think Alan Moore has ever liked any adaptation of anything yes. that's been <laughs> done <with> his work.
3: <laughs> One of the things that disappointed me at least a little bit um, was essentially just these fleeting references uh, to Islamophobia. Right. So, you know, when, when Evie is, you know, getting uh, basically finishing her makeup and all the rest of that before she's going to head over to Dietrich's um, relatively early in the film, you know, uh, Prothero is, is the voice of London is is on there basically talking about the ulcered sphincter of Arcerica referring to the United States. Um, and, and she's, you know, watching him uh, and he makes, you know, just that one reference to, you know, uh, what, quote, what had to be done and getting rid of the de- so-called degenerates and homosexuals and Muslims. And then you, you only get the other reference, of course, when, when Evie you know, manages to uh, escape from the pedophile priest, um, uh, pedophile bishop, I should say, um, and, and gets over to uh, Dietrich's place. He takes her in and then you know, he, he literally brings her into his real world uh, in that hidden uh, anteroom. Uh, where he's got a copy of uh, a 14th century uh, illuminated uh, copy uh, of the Quran. And I, I wish that there had been you know, a little bit more of a treatment um, you know, on, on what had happened essentially to, in this case, British Muslims. Because, of course, at, at the time this film came out, and I can't remember if it came out before the stellar wind revelations or after the stellar wind revelations, but it definitely came out after all of those initial raids, you know, in the, in the early days uh, after 9-11, where so many uh, Arab and Muslim men were rounded up. Uh, some of them were, in fact, Americans um, who, were, who were captured in these immigration raids and, and the entire climate, essentially, um, that, that was created there for that particular community. And and how it, it continues to this day, right? I mean, it, it it the the Trump administration literally doubled down in in many respects with respect to the uh, the, the Muslim ban, um, and and the can and the continued you know attacks essentially on Arab and Muslim Americans and all the rest of that. So I I, I wish that they had uh, that they'd gone into that you know in a little bit uh, uh, deeper uh, detail there, but you know that that's also essentially a uh, a deviation from uh, for Moore's, you know, original.
0: Well, it's also important, right. For the success of the movie that it, that it's relevant to what was going on during that time period. But like you said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that can, we can relate to today as well. And the movie came out, I got, gosh, 15 years ago now, or 16 years ago now. And, um, I think another big part that we haven't really hit on yet is that like, we're kind of meant to hate, the movie's imagery of like dictatorship and how violent they are and like how they're, um, how they treat minorities. And like you were just saying, Pat, but by the end, we're supposed to find like these violence against the dictatorship good and like emotionally satisfying. Um, and I think we talked about this during actually our discussion about the purge movies, but it's this like idea that we want, the hero to enact violence against the dictatorship, but we like abhor the violence the dictatorship, is uh, executing. So I think there's like again, this weird tension that like we're celebrating violence. like we're celebrating blowing things up because V in a sense, like has gotten his his idea has spread and that was the goal.
3: You know, let's let's you know, let's just be brutally honest about our culture here. A celebration of violence is as American as apple pie. Uh, our, ours is arguably the most violent culture on earth. I I, I think in so many ways, right? I mean, and it, it I think what you're what you're kind of alluding to here, Natalie, is you know the the amount of violent content that you just see in our entertainment industry, and and how much people eat that up. Um, and I and I think about you know in the context of of political repression and and police repression specifically you know one of the reasons that the police in this country you know have managed to get a pass for so long i think uh is because of the cultural context you know it started with you know really you know uh uh benign movies uh like dra- or benign series like dragnet right and i i'm really i'm really dating myself um <laughs> when i when i talk about that one one adam 12 also dating myself uh, but, you know, then you fast forward and it's not until you get to a series like Hill Street Blues, um, that you begin to get, you know, a, a little bit more nuanced, you know, look at, at, at cops and policing and their relationship to the public and this whole issue of, of police violence. And then you finally get NYPD Blue, where, where I think you actually get something a lot closer to reality. Uh, but it, it's taken us a long time as a culture. Uh, and, and I think among the white Protestant majority in this country, it's taken a long time to really kind of begin to, to come to grips with a lot of that. And, and I think that, you know, we do, uh, celebrate, uh, violence, you know, a, against a, a tyrannical power. I mean, that's, that's what our founding, you know, was allegedly about. That's also kind of a fairy tale too, uh, you know, in, in a lot of respects, um, but, but we absolutely do. Um, and, and I don't care if it's Star Wars or Star Trek or, you know, fill in the blank. Um, there's just, we, we live in a society that is, uh, extremely comfortable with violence and, and often casual violence. And, and I think the, you know, the purge movies are an awesome. Oh, example yeah. of that. <laughs> um, uh, but it, it, it says something about us, right. And, and something I think that's, not necessarily, you know, always super awesome in that regard.
2: Yeah, I mean, V, v is very much, uh, you know, I think, again, this is a, a very early Moore work. Uh, and I think V is is very much a kind of anarchist Mary Sue, um, you know, sort of superhero, superhero <laughs> badass um, of the sort that I think is kind of interestingly deconstructed in uh, Grant Morrison, the other, you know, sort of the next great, uh, I suppose, along with Neil Gaiman, kind of British comics scribe. Uh, In his series, The Invisibles, you have King Mob, who's another, again, kind of anarchist, super badass. Um, But that role and his relationship to uh, sort of aestheticized cool violence is much more directly interrogated there. Um, there, And there's, you know, there's certainly things in the film that read a little differently now, his rationalization, for example, of the, the, the killing of Louis Prothero, who is effectively a media figure, and I don't know if I, ju- you know, I dignify him with the title journalist, but um, uh, a, a kind of tele- a media figure, an anchor. Uh, we learn eventually, of course, that he's killed in part for crimes committed as a, uh, a kind of commandant at a, um, a camp where human experimentation is being done. But at the time, uh, you know, the, the film audience at least is not necessarily aware of this. Um, and so it is sort of justifying the the killing of a media person for, um, you know, I guess for, for spreading bad, for fake news of a sort. So I think that reads a little more uncomfortably now. Um, and it is, you know, it is interesting. There are things that I think the, where the movie maybe fails a little bit um, because it is sort of uncomfortable in places with really depicting the, uh, the kind of horror of what V is doing. Um, I mean, so if you, if you look at the scenes where I think you know, partly I just think Natalie Portman is is, is maybe miscast here um, in significant parts because her, her terrible British accent is, is distracting. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, um, true. but, you know, if you, if you look Fair at enough. the scenes where um, where I mean, he does this sort of horrifying thing, right? He kidnaps and tortures uh, and, you know, psychologically deconstructs uh this this woman leading her to believe that she's in prison is going to be killed um physically effectively tortures her uh and you know i guess this is supposed to be justified in the end because it brings her to this sort of transfiguring experience and she ultimately um sort of i guess endorses it and believes she's a better person but you know people who are brainwashed um often i guess you know come out of it thinking oh i'm so glad um, I've been shown the light by your your process of, you know, kind of mental conditioning. Um, it's still this sort of appalling thing. And in a way, I don't think those scenes entirely work because one of the things I noticed as I was rewatching it for this is really they are afraid to make Natalie Portman look um, sort of as harrowed and, and beat up. Um, as someone would be realistically, I mean, she's still basically Natalie Portman. She looks very pretty. She looks like she's getting a cute haircut when her head is going. You know, she's crying, but um, she, you know, <laughs> she, she still looks like a very attractive Natalie Portman with a little bit of kind of you know eye makeup to make her look tired. Um, but they're you know they're not really willing to make her look like someone who has been sort of beaten and starved and subject to sleep deprivation. Um, so she still looks pretty good um, in those in those final scenes. Um, where she's, you know, supposedly been there for days or weeks. Uh, and, and I think maybe one reason for that is just that it would be, I think, difficult to ever find, be sympathetic again, um, if you did not to some extent soften the reality of this sort of horrific thing he's doing to her, um, nominally for her own good. But he, he really, you know, he sounds like a kind of classic abuser uh, when he's sort of explaining why he really, he did th- he did this for her own benefit.
3: If he had done that to me, I can guarantee you that I wouldn't go Stockholm syndrome. I would I would want to go full Mandalorian on him, you know. I, that's <laughs> that, that's that's where I would be. I would not be grateful for that. I I would I would not be thanking anybody for that. Um yeah, I I, I agree with you Julian. I I I think, you know, Charlie's Theron in in the Mad Max remake uh would be a much more, you know, towards the end of the movie, a much more much more realistic depiction of, of what happened there. But yeah, I, I think even with, even with the flaws, um, you know, we've discussed here, uh, you know, with the film and, and, uh, and the fact that it's a wee bit dated now, I still think there is an enormously, you know, powerful and, and potentially, uh, very useful and timely message about opposition to authority and, and quite frankly, you know, how, um, how we can be literally just you know one generation away from having you know this American experiment slip away from us? You know, I I think that that Reagan you know was very very on point when he made that observation, and it 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 does concern me deeply. Um, the the path that we appear to be on now. I mean, I, I've you know a lot of people talking about the destruction of norms and all the rest of that, and clearly. You know this. This film depicts norms being um, uh, bulldozed, blown up, incinerated, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but I, I do think that it, it it does serve a really important. It, it should serve, I think, as as a really important warning for exactly what can happen if if you don't, you know, try to keep uh, keep things you know on the rails and and above board and and have people not simply respect the law. Uh, because the law at the end of the day really depends on people going along with those norms, uh, and embracing those norms. So I, I, I do think there's, there's value there.
0: And also kind of going along with that, there's like this, this theme of fear throughout the movie, which I think, um, kind of is resonating with an audience can resonate with an audience today. So there was this great quote that said, People shouldn't fear their governments. Governments should fear their people. And I was wondering how you all thought, like, the Wachowskis portrayed that idea throughout this movie. This idea that, like, fear is bigger if you, like, kind of let it consume you. So it's like this bigger idea and how you switch, how a society goes and switches from fearing their government to having the government fear them.
3: Oh, I, I think that, uh, for one thing, that's that's my favorite line in the entire movie. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's a line, I think we all know that a a large number of folks who claim to be libertarians have embraced. Um, And, you know, look, um, there is a reason why I have tentatively titled the book I'm working on The Triumph of Fear. I mean, (laughs) that was, um, you know, that was very deliberate, because when when you look at the history of this, this country, and I, I was talking with my wife, you know, this morning about uh, a lot of this stuff because she is quite frankly terrified uh, with where things stand here on on November the fourth, twenty twenty. But I, I I made the point that this this streak of authoritarianism that, that I also think is is very American has been with us since the founding. Um, it was less than ten years after the ratification and actual actually the Constitution coming into force, less than ten years. That we had uh, this new Federalist Party ram through the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, in the Congress, you know, to this day, you know, easily the most uh, among the most, if not the most uh, anti-democratic, um, virtually totalitarian, uh, you know, kind of uh, legislative and political act uh, that we've seen, you know, next, next, to the, uh, next to the institution of slavery itself, of course. So uh, this this idea that you know when 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 people feel threatened, um, you know to kind of to kind of borrow a biological term, they go hind brain, uh, and 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 that's exactly what happened after nine eleven, right? I mean we 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 had this situation where the attacks take place, and instead of doing you know the rational thing, which is to hold the investigations first. To figure out why the attack succeeded. Six weeks after the attacks, we, r- we ran through legislation, the Patriot Act, uh, that is the supposed solution to why the attacks have occurred. And of course, there's not a single provision of the Patriot Act that I'm aware of that can be tied to actually stopping a subsequent attack on this country, or for that matter, American interest overseas. So bad things always happen you know, when folks give in to fear, Un- unfortunately, you know, if, if I were a bookie, I, I have to admit, I'd almost always bet on fear uh, because that unfortunately is just too often how, how people react. Uh, and and it, it helps to create the kind of climate that we have, the, the kind of feeling that we have. And when, when you create an entirely new government department, the, the Department of Homeland Security, which I prefer to refer to as the Department of Fatherland Security, <laughs> um, hmm, which, which which does nothing, which does nothing but but hype threats day in and day out through press releases and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Um, there's even a Twitter account, the U.S. Department of Fear, um, that 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 does try to satirize this stuff as much as possible. But that's what we're living with. You know, that's that's the mentality that has been created and that's been sustained, uh, and it has a warping effect. A, a dramatic warping effect, and and you—at least I begin to believe—that the more of these incidents that you have, and the longer they go on, the more corrosive they are to to attempts to try to preserve fundamental liberties.
2: You know, I just say one one interesting, and I I realize I keep doing this sort of hipster thing. Well, you are in the graphic novel, uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, forgive me. I'll, <laughs> one thing that that is is stressed much more is because they have the space of this. Long-running series. I think you, you would get a very different um, product if this had been, you know, a ten-episode HBO miniseries uh, of the sort they did with, with, with Watchmen. Um, but there's much more exploration there of the fact that those in power themselves actually also live in this sort of state of constant terror. And these sort of elaborate knocking over all the dominoes plots uh, in in the in the comic involves sort of exploiting these internal uh, kind of Game of Thrones machinations of uh, the various senior government officials who are themselves at, at, at each other's throats. Um, the idea that uh, under a, a kind of totalitarian state that everything is this kind of it, it is effectively a state of nature, um, which is, you know, what Leviathan is supposed to rescue us from. Uh, but in fact, no, it is this savage, uh, vicious sort of wilderness Um uh, where, you know, there's this sort of mask of civility, but in fact, people are constantly at each other's throats and constantly nervous about their position. Um, you see a little of, uh, of that in uh, uh, a very much diluted way when um, you see Adam Suttler um, uh, in a great bit of stunt casting played by John Hurt, uh, famously uh, portrayed Winston Smith in, in, I think, the best uh, adaptation of 1984. Um uh, but, you know, as this who's seen always as this, uh, you know, face on a screen uh, imposing like Big Brother and threatening people uh, in a kind of shout out to his, his, his prior role uh, or reversal of his prior role um, and telling his subordinates. So if you don't get results, it'll be you who's in, you know, uh, up against the wall. And then the first time we actually see him in person, um, I, I think. Uh, and not as this giant screen face um, he's this weak terrified old man who's been kidnapped by one of his own subordinates and is unceremoniously shot in the head uh so sort of sobbing and pleading for his life um as as you know one of the you know essentially one of the inmates of this prison uh, has has beat the other to death and um <laughs> that is you know w- one thing that stands out about the uh the, the sort of the whole torture sequence with Evie the fake uh, you know, the fake interrogation sequence, um, is again there. I think there's also an, an obvious, you know, trans reading of that that's in the original, but this may be w- some of why the Wachowski's found it appealing, right? Is this kind of Gnostic idea of, you know, you believe you are in a prison, but it's not. The guards are mannequins. The, you know, the walls are, are, you know, paper mache. The, um, the rat in the cell is a, a, um, uh, a, you know, a, a pet, basically. Um, so, hey, the, the prison you believe you're in is a construct. And, uh, in fact, you may be able to just walk out the doors anytime you please. Um, as, as soon as you recognize, um, that this prison is illusory. Um, obviously, these sort are of the literal prison in, in these case, but in a sense, the prison of fear, the prison of, uh, believing in, uh, the structures of authority um, and, and the reality they've created. Um, that, hey, you, you've got the keys. This is this is Maya. This is the the veil of illusion, uh, and in fact, uh, it has no power over you unless you um, unless you consent to it.
1: And now for the part of the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying during our time at home. This is locked in. So, Pat and Julian, uh, has anything else been something you've been really, really enjoying other than rewatching V for Vendetta?
3: The <laughs> Mandalorian. The Mandalorian is here. <laughs> <laughs> Season two underway. Th- absolutely loved the opening episode. Uh, 54 minutes, which makes me think that maybe, maybe Disney is giving them more money <laughs> so they can actually stretch these things out to a full hour and, and give us even more. Uh, more character development. But uh one
0: could hope. <laughs> yeah, no, it's
3: uh and and so now, you know, uh I'm just living for the Ahsoka Tano uh reveal. Um that's the number one reason that that I'm so psyched about this season. Um uh for those of you who have only watched the Star Wars movies, if you have not watched the animated stuff, you really are missing out on an awful lot of stuff, but especially uh, the final season of the Clone Wars um, and, uh, uh, and Star Wars Rebels, uh, Star Wars Rebels, is especially relevant uh, for the Mandalorian. Anyway, that's my Star Wars homily. I'm channeling <laughs> Aaron. I'm channeling Aaron right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, but yeah, beyond that, uh, uh, doing my best to, uh, to try to read some uh, of some of the, some of the Rather large number of books that I've uh, I've bought over the course of uh, uh, of the last uh, year or so. A lot of it in support of, of the research I'm doing for my own book, but some of some of this stuff just for my own edification. And one of them that I'm going through now is Tower of Skulls uh, by Richard B. Frank, which is the first of a three volume series that he's doing on on what he calls essentially the Asia Pacific War. And so he he looks at the whole conflict in the Pacific. Uh, in, in in the Second World War era, really starting with China and, and what happened there uh, in China. Uh, and it's terrific. He's a fantastic historian. His book on Guadalcanal, for those of you who are interested in the Pacific War, his book on Guadalcanal, uh, written in 1992, stands as uh, easily the best uh, on that campaign ever written. Um, he's He's a great writer. So that's what I'm digging into.
2: Yeah, so actually, I think either Natalie, you or Landry mentioned Lovecraft Country, which I've uh, belatedly been uh, enjoying Oh, a, I
0: still want to start that. <laughs> um, it's, it's
2: really, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, it's, it's very good. Um, and as well as, I don't remember if I've mentioned this on a previous episode, um, but The Boys, uh, which is based on the, uh, the Garth Ennis comic, uh, sort of asks the question, you know, kind of, okay, what, what if there were superheroes, but they were like real people who had, uh, often at a very young age, this kind of, Incredible unaccountable power and fame and money, and what would they really behave like? And the answer is, you know, of course, not very well. Um uh, they, they might effectively you know behave like supervillains, except to the extent that necessary to, to maintain a public front to keep the money coming in. Um so that's that's on the uh the viewing front. Uh, I'm reading uh Pyrenees by Susanna Clark, who is probably best known as the author of Jonathan Strange and Mr. norrell um, Piranesi is a more I mean, magical realist is probably not quite right, Just not that realist it's a sort of surrealist story about a man um, mostly alone in this sort of enormous uh, hall structure full of various kinds of art um, and you know just what he does in this sort of strange, lonely environment, uh, as well as Charlie Strauss's uh Dead Lies Dreaming. It's the most sort of recent installment of his very long-running series, The Laundry Files, so sort of the premise of which is, is effectively um, kind of Lovecraftian magic is real, and there are government agencies that um, are uh, tasked with secretly dealing with this. Uh, it's it started as a kind of pastiche or, or spoof of British spy fiction, but it's kind of morphed into this, different and much more interesting thing, uh, where, uh, I think, I think in the present tense of the, um, of that universe, uh, spoilers, sorry, uh, <laughs> from the the Lovecraft mythos is essentially prime minister of Great Britain. So there's that. Um, <laughs> ne- next up in my queue, um, is, um, uh, the most recent Haruki Murakami, Killing Commendatore, uh, and on the sort of work front, um, I just started, um, Sarah Brains, uh, Predict and Surveil, Data Discretion and the Future of Policing, which is uh, looking nice. quite interesting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the release of Privacy at the Margins, which is a um, uh, forthcoming. I think it's been a little bit delayed book that I'm, I'm really anticipating about uh, privacy and marginalized communities. Uh, and gaming wise, I've been playing a, a bit of Among Us, which is a uh, kind of fun social deduction trader game in the spirit of, um, you know, Mafia and Werewolf. And I've downloaded, I've not started it yet, but I'm looking forward to starting uh, Watch Dogs Legion, the third game in the in the Watch Dogs series by Ubisoft, um, where it sort of centers on hackers in a, um, in this case, a kind of surveillance state London, uh, and has this sort of interesting quirk of... Uh, having sort of the city populated by people, all of whom can be kind of recruited and made playable with different sorts of sets of skills to go around either uh, social engineering or hacking things or, um, you know, using physical combat skills to navigate uh, various missions. Um, that looks maybe like the most sort of interesting uh, installation in that in that series to date. I feel like uh, Watch Dogs has been a series always with like a, a lot of potential and a lot of interest for folks like us, like Pat and I who work on, Surveillance issues, but, um, this they've never quite nailed it. Um, and maybe this is, maybe this is the time they finally do that.
0: On my front. I, um, I'm reading the, oh gosh, the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. It's just like a fiction book. I am really enjoying it. I have about, I'm like a little over halfway. Um, it's basically this, um, story of like a Hollywood social light in the 1950s. Um, but the, the book is set in like today, and it's her like recapping her whole life, and she's like never spoken in public about it. Um, but it's it's very interesting. Um, and then I'm I also um, are keeping up with This Is Us. It came back on the TV. Um, I just find that uh, one of uh, more. Uh, enjoyable shows to kind of like put on in the background and I've been following it since it started and it just came back October 27th I think uh so that season is only two episodes in and then I am almost almost done shit's creek I am in the fifth season it has been worth every second it's uh very lighthearted and I feel like it got a lot of more attention since um since it won so many awards but it's it's definitely a good way to distract myself from everything else going on uh the character of david is absolutely hilarious um i sometimes i want to i want to channel my inner david but anyway um yes yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of what i've been up to and uh since i'm at i'm at home for uh in philly for the election time i have been uh spending a lot of time watching some children's movies as well because i'm with my nephew so lots of disney plus re-watch and re-watch uh like moana and a bug's life uh so those have been fun to kind of see again <laughs>
1: uh i have been uh painting a lot of miniatures and avoiding election coverage uh giving, <laughs> <laughs> giving myself something to do with my hands which has been nice um i also have just started playing among us julian uh and he had, had messaged just about it uh discussing some things with us about that game before so i've been having a lot of fun actually getting to play it myself when i realized i could download it on mobile and just play via discord um i have also been listening to a lot of uh martha which is a sort of punk rock band from i believe uh north england uh interesting sort of queer anarchist uh diy pop-punk band. that's It's very fun and catchy. Um, uh, I, I think people would really enjoy them. Um, I just listened to a very, very interesting and well-done, but tough-to-listen-to podcast. Uh, it's called Crackdown, uh, and it is produced by people who are, are living uh, mostly with opioid and heroin addiction, um, actually created by them, and not just telling their story for them. But specifically, there's an episode that uh, I realized I was at a, a conference where they won an award at called change intolerance where uh they basically tell the story of how in i believe it was 2014 the uh government of british columbia changed the methadone uh Uh, medication that they were using for their government-funded methadone program to something called methadose. And it was basically a a complete failure and didn't work more than a third of the time and induced all sorts of sickness. And is, is this really heartbreaking, interesting interesting perspective about what can go wrong even with well-intentioned sort of drug treatment programs that people run um so it's very very interesting i i recommend people if they're interested in that type of policy uh check it out um i have also and this is how i've been spending most of my nights with my wife i have recently discovered the joy of the netflix series busted oh god
3: Uh, (laughs) <laughs> it is
1: it is incredible. Uh, Natalie, you're going to hate it as I describe it, but I guarantee you'll enjoy wait. it. I can't wait. It is a Korean variety show where all of these K-pop stars and K-drama celebrities and, and people that are famous in the sort of Korean media scene uh, play fictional versions of themselves. So they go by their real name, but they play like... They play themselves if they were detectives. And there is this, like, it's highly unscripted in certain portions, but there's also this mythology where they are detectives that are part of a team that are trying to solve a larger, like, conspiratorial case, but they have to do challenges in sort of this most extreme challenge slash amazing race style thing where they're running around a city and they either have to do sort of slapstick comedy challenges or they have to solve logic oh puzzles and uh figure out words scr- i mean any type of puzzle or game that you can think of that is sort of a, a way that they they could test a, a detective for a fate show um they do and it's also funny because you can tell they're trying to commit to the bit of the story that they're solving very serious crimes, but they're also, you know being goofy and they will run into other celebrities that have like cameo roles and it'll be like oh I'm the you know I'm the friend of the murder victim but it'll be another famous K-pop star and they will not know who they they have to walk in and like commit to the role when they're just going expecting to meet anyone and so there's this like multiple levels that it operates on but if you have no idea who these people are like me it's even more fun still because you can tell we're supposed to be laughing at something or there's some sort of other meaning that you're not getting and it's still fun um and there's a lot of banter between the stars and you kind of learn about them and their personalities and there's like the sort of goofy like sort of dumber characters that some of them play and it may not be a character they might just be not as good at solving puzzles and mysteries and then there's like the the handsome leader and the it, it's it's just a very interesting show unlike anything else that makes me want to you know watch a lot more of these korean variety shows of which there are apparently a lot um yeah that's busted on netflix If there is another significant date that you think that we need to remember other than the 5th of November, make sure to let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.